there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun race. And hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So. Toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, excuse me, West. Make it rain. I have paraffin ironed onto it once in a while. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like, which is, can't be super hard at that time. Yeah. I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Really. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, Daddy, because I'm on my way. I can feel my way. On the backstretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. Deep inside my veins, you must ride to be running. I'm going to get what I can and more, even if my blood, my sweat, and my tears don't mean nothing. Okay. My best advice to you, shut up. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, it wasn't playing me like it. You shut up. It's just like, if you want to talk to me outside, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Talk about that. Bumble like Michael Ray. Tell him again. It's bumble like Michael Ray. Hear what I said. The Twins are going to win the World Series. The Twins have won it. It's a base hit. It's a one nothing. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Yes, you're listening to a new show. We were lazy and we just used the same one from last week. So it is January 30th. And um, once again, Leadville, the greatest Nordic ski city in the world, although it always needs a little bit of help. We were out there skiing last night and having a great time on the classic tracks. They haven't groomed all week. And I'm starting to realize now that they just have decided to groom Friday night and I think maybe maybe Monday morning, although they didn't do that this time because we didn't get any any uh, significant snow. So they basically groomed previous Friday night. So we're talking like nine days ago now. And uh, after they groomed, it was amazing on Friday. And then we got this little snowfall Saturday night. Um, and 
kind of ruined the skating options on the mineral belt. But the classic track quickly became really nice because people kind of just keep packing that thing down anyway. So all this week, we've had great classic conditions for skiing. And so I, I haven't minded that at all. I haven't done really hardly any skating, though, because <clears throat> no one has, has groomed that. And it's kind of that... Uh, that really slow snow, you know, when you get a groom and then it immediately snows on top of it, a layer of one inch. And it just, that acts like this glue adhesive and it <clears throat> makes it pretty much impossible to skate. Well, so last night I'm out skiing. Wow. Coffee. Need more coffee. Hmm. Last night I'm out skiing. I think I need some vocal, uh, restoration after all this online teaching. Maybe that's the problem. Like Paul Allen. Anyway, I am out skiing last night, finishing up my my time, and I noticed that the groomer that we pay $500 per groom to come up from Wyoming to do our grooming is um, the city. I don't know. The, the organization here is just kind of a fail. But they come, they're coming, and they're grooming the mineral belt, which looks beautiful, but I was shaking my head because checking the forecast, I knew... Saturday morning between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. it was going to snow and so even if this guy finishes his groom and and it sits all nice it sets up which I think it was a little too warm for him to be grooming anyway to be honest he probably should have waited waited anyway but even if it works this is all going to be destroyed by the snow so a lot of frustration because this is like the third time this has happened where we've where whoever is the one in charge of bringing this groomer up, they have groomed within hours of a snowstorm. And then they they don't come back and re-groom it. They just, they groom, they go back to Wyoming, and then we have that for the next week. And so uh, pretty frustrated by that. But, but I was not let down because it wasn't weather that was going to ruin this grooming job. It was going to be left to the people who really deserve to use this grooming and that is the fat tire bikers the walkers and the runners so even within seconds of this fresh groom which i was you know stuck on the trail i had to get down but i was classic skiing so i wasn't going to touch the skate deck i know that thing has to set up and get firm so i am finishing my ski on the downhill in the classic tracks when i see in front of me a fat tire biker and a dog and the fat tire bike is sinking at least two or three inches into the skate deck and he's just going right down the middle so he 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 was the one who benefited the most right from that five hundred dollar groom actually i mean he didn't really right like even fat tire biking on a fresh groom is like the worst thing ever because it's soft still so it's not even set up Oh my gosh. So he he just rips apart the skate deck and it wasn't another minute of me flying down the hill when I realized just a little later on there was a person walking right across the skate deck too. Same thing, footprints sinking multiple inches in. It's bad enough if we have a really cold, firm skate deck and we have walkers and fat tire bikes on it. I, I'm I'm okay with it because you can still skate, you know, decently and whatever, but but even that's bad enough. And I don't say this as if it's not their right. I get it, that they have the right to use it, the trail. What I would just want to say, if there's anyone in Leadville who listens to us or anywhere, um, this is coming from a runner, someone who enjoys running. And um, first and foremost, really, that was my first sport, is the you got to remember that for the skier, his only place he can go are the groom tracks. As a runner, you have limitless options and so why are you ruining the one place where the skier can go when you can go anywhere? 
And in Leadville, it's kind of worse because it's not even a great run. It really isn't. Running on the Mineral Belt is is not enjoyable. There are way better places um, right next to the Mineral Belt, in fact. So I'm always confused when I see runners. Runners are, to me, I'd, I wouldn't mind chucking a Bolshinov at them and tackling them or throwing a stick or even impaling them um, to the point of um, death, if necessary. No, I'm just kidding. But but they're the ones who I really get annoyed with. And they're of my kind. So when I see runners running right, tromping right down a a skate deck or a ski path, it's I, I have now started, I stopped one guy who was my age. I'm like, you really shouldn't be on here. Like, can you... Can you, you know, run over there on the trail that's four foot traffic that's five feet away from you? You know, you're ruining the one the one thing here. I didn't even say it like that. I actually said, you know, if, if you run into some other skiers, they might really get mad at you. And he was a young guy and was really nice about it. Okay, thanks. Thanks for letting me know. And I even said, you know, it's almost better to run right where the double polling, your pole is going to come in on the classic track. Don't get on the classic track itself. But if you're kind of over the edge, then at least you save the middle of the skate deck. Which I wouldn't tell to everyone because then they might start walking on the classic track. But but it is true. I'd rather have footprints where I'm putting my pole than a footprint right down the middle of where I'm trying to skate. Anyway, this is this is my rant for the morning. But runners, have fun finding better routes than running on top of cross-country ski trails for crying out loud. And fat tire bikers, okay, fine. You have the right to the trail, but can't you at least be considerate? Don't go right down the trail the second it's been groomed. If your tire is sinking in... And you are struggling to move because you are sinking in like quicksand. Not only are you not having fun, it should be your first alert that like, I shouldn't be on this trail. And by the way, that goes for skiers too. There are a few kind of stupid skiers around here that the gr- the grooming will happen. They'll go, oh wow, fresh corduroy. And they'll hop on it and sink five inches in. Gotta let that thing sit a little bit. You just ruined that for the rest of the week. <laughs> so point is... Weather ruined the grooming. We have we have just some incompetence, it seems like. I don't know. I'm not a weatherman. I'm not a grooming scientist and by all means. But even I could have done a better job of making sure that, that if we're going to pay for one grooming per week, you can't do the grooming one hour before it snows. I don't know. Like, have a tiny bit of foresight. That's That's not that hard to do. Okay, I wasn't planning on using that much time to talk about the skiing, but I think it's a good public service announcement. So let's hop into what I really wanted to chat about, which was yesterday we had in Sweden a 10K freestyle interval start for the women and a 15K freestyle interval start for the men. And I watched both races, and I can honestly say in my short ski fan racing career, I've never been more proud to be an an American fan than I was yesterday watching the performances. I have a few reasons why. Obviously, it was very cool to see Jesse Diggins narrowly defeat Johag, the supreme distance skier of our generation, and 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 a, such a superior dominant athlete Johag is. Um, she really has been unbeatable, um, especially distance races. Obviously, uh, I mean it, it's it's incredible to analyze her dominance and when she when when there's a race and it's a distance race or a hilly course even in a sprint course like other girls haven't even had a chance I mean it is she's just built so differently she is she is kind of like a um you know uh, she has the Kenyan runner endurance 
never, never, uh, never tiring, kind of just almost robotic. How do they hold that four minute mile pace for 10K? Kind of like demeanor and physicality to her that is kind of rare in cross country skiing nowadays. Um, in an age more where power and um, overall body mass seems to seems to prevail in general, Johag kind of has that, but she also has the just wiry strength. I, I've I've heard from other sources that she she is very strong and powerful too, and compact, and I believe it, and you see it. Like her technique is is displayed in such a way. What she is v twoing. Um, and what, what she can double pull. It's not, she's not a skinny, wimpy skier by any means. She's probably just as powerful and strong as the strongest and, um, larger skiers that she competes against, but wow, she's just, so she's been so dominant. So, so obviously to see Diggins overcome her, that was the first thing that was just kind of cool. Um, but even if she hadn't defeated Johag, um, it still kind of has just hit me now that, Dickens has an authenticity to her toughness and effort that is really unlike anything we have seen in endurance sports since Steve Prefontaine. Um, she is the type of athlete who lives out that full gas. Uh, and that alone, I think, makes her a champion, a true champion. But on top of that, she's she's produced several high-level results. Uh, and, then, and, and yesterday was a new high, I think, where she defeats Yohag at the peak of her might. So um, I'll back that up a little bit. Steve Prefontaine, those of you, right, the famous distance runner from the 70s, the Coos Bay, the Oregon, Pro- Oregon University of Oregon, went to the 72 Olympics. I'm going to run the last mile in under four minutes, and I dare anyone to stay with me, right? To, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. He's been the poster child for 100% effort is what defines true success in competing, and it doesn't matter what race you're in, you give 100% effort, and, and to race any other way is just is just utter foolishness and, and being a coward. And Diggins embodies that on the, um, on the ski trails, for sure. I think you could put Diggins in the most low-key race ever. And, I mean, it could be the Edgewood Park in Fargo, North Dakota, um 5k and and i think if she if she was you know hey this is a race she would come across the line and collapse uh in in heaving and moaning and wheezing just like she does in the world cup like she seems like that type of person that can can click that switch and she will arrive at full utter exhaustion no matter what because she has that ideals of competition in her spirit and it and it's just it's incredible all athletes should be watching and observing that and trying to emulate that. Um, she does that better than anyone. <clears throat> and she's also tougher than most people. I think one thing that is kind of encouraging as a fan, this is why it's fun to be a U.S. ski fan now, is when when she's in the starting line, you kind of have this confidence and hope that, like, we have a chance, you know? And, and it's not it's not just based in her talent, at all, really. It's it's much more based in the fact that you know when she puts on the bib, like, we have a chance because her effort's going to be totally there. Um, and, and in today's world of athletics, that is that is becoming more and more rare, where you can count on an athlete and they are dependable from an effort standpoint. Um, we have some athletes that are that are somewhat dependable on a productivity standpoint, um, and that would be kind of more like the Clabo, really, where if it's a sprint race, you feel like Clabo is just going to win. 
But even in a sprint race, you aren't you aren't guaranteed that Clabo is going to be full gas. Clabo is much more about the aesthetic. He wants to look like he is winning with ease. And if someone cuts him off or there is adversity on the course, Clabo is not someone who is going to rise above that. Diggins absolutely is. You know, she does not for a second pause to think about anything that would be unfair that would happen to her or whatever and make excuses later on. She is in the battle and she is fighting until the whistle blows, right? And that's the difference. Um, Same thing with, you know, you think of athletes like Steph Curry. Usually Curry's a 45% shooter from the three-point line, but there are nights where he's one for nine, okay? And, And when those nights happen and it's not aesthetically pleasing, you know, he might be he might be a little out of it. You're not gonna count on the fact that he's gonna give that that full gas effort on the defensive end then. You know, again, athletes today, they 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 kinda wanna look good. They and, and when they are good, they're focused more on productivity, they're more focused more on what it looks like, the aesthetics. We have an athlete like Diggins who we can depend on her effort. Every race, doesn't matter the race, when she's in there, she's gonna she's gonna act in those moments like it is life or death. And this goes back to an article I, I wrote, you know, on our podcast about, you know, I may, you might be thinking, well, this is contradictory to what you were saying about perspective. And what about that? I think that maybe perhaps the coolest thing about Diggins is she embodies both. When she is in the competitive circle, it is life or death that she gives 100% effort and then she does everything she can to get the most out of herself. But notice that is the focus. And yes, she wants to win and she wants to compete. She has the heart of a competitor, but her, her uh, outside of racing, her, the perspective that she has is also mature and, and correctly dialed in where she knows her identity is not placed in who she is as a skier. And, and even if she struggles with that and it's an internal struggle, she is working at that in the sense that she knows it's not right. When she does let her identity maybe fall into a place of how she's competing, she quickly realizes, no, there's more to life than just skiing. And I'm going to laugh and I'm going to have glitter. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to smile at the starting line. I know there's pressure. There is pressure, but but I'm going to acknowledge it and I'm going to place it in its proper perspective. And as soon as the uh, gun goes off and I'm in this race, it's full bore and this is all that matters um, in those moments. But it's not all that matters outside of it. And she can she can have both of those things coexist, and so that's why you see her in the in the comp- competitive sphere. She's sometimes even giving more effort than people whose identity is placed in the sport, and she's caring more and she's competing harder. But then when she walks away, she can still deal with the results, no matter what happens. She's she's satisfied with her effort. She's satisfied with what she did. She poured out her heart. These are all things that we should be teaching young athletes to do right? It is that you come into your sport knowing your identity is not placed in this sport. But when you're competing, it is pointless to do anything but pour your heart into it. <clears throat> now, that that's, I think that's even true, by the way, of athletes who are maybe part of a team, a, a college team or, or a running team or a basketball team, maybe just for the social aspect, or maybe just they just kind of want to have balance in their life and have something in general. That's fine. But in when the gun goes off in a race, the whole point is still to give everything you have in that moment, right? I, I, I don't believe it is helpful for a person to sign up to be a member of a team. And yeah, the, this isn't everything to them. They just want to be in it for fun. 
But then to have them, when the gun goes off, also joke within the race, you are diminishing the real value that you actually want to get from this experience. So even if you're not going to train as hard as Owen Cassidy, Quentin Cassidy, even if you're not going to care as much as Jess Diggins um, does about succeeding, you should care as much as Jess Diggins does when the gun goes off. Because that's going to help you be a better doctor, be a better uh, teacher, be a better nurse, be a better anything, insert anything, right? Whatever your kind of main goal is. And we talk about this all the time. We're like, what is the main purpose of sports? Well, sports is a training ground for life. And when you treat it as such, and then you act like a Jess Diggins does in the competition, in, in all aspects of it. You walk away with the actual value that's meant to be seen from it. And that goes for anyone, whether or not you uh, really prioritize your athletics or not. Um, and I think that's that's a discussion. I've had some disagreement with coaches or people about that, about whether that's true or not. <clears throat> so it is something that I've thought about, too. You know, I've, and, I, and as a captain of a team, I've had to kind of think about that. Like, not everyone views this this game, this sport the same way you do. I'm fine with that. Um, I'm fine with that. If, if by view the same, that they don't, they're not putting as much stock in it. That's okay. I'm not asking every member of the cross country team to put in hundred mile weeks. And, and by hundred mile weeks, I simply, I know I don't just mean literally hundred mile weeks. I mean that as to symbolize I'm doing whatever it takes to prioritize running. I, I'm not asking that for people. I don't think that's right for everyone. But what I am asking is whatever part you do give to running, you should you should in those moments give all of your effort. Um, and, and to be honest, I was kind of the same when I was in college. I had that actually going on with my music to somewhat degree because I was trying to balance music and running. I know I'm getting a little off topic of skiing here, but but let's let's just wrap up this topic. And I and I was probably to the to the musicians going, well, he needs to give more time and effort to his music. Well, I had made the choice that I was going to prioritize my athletics slightly more than my music, but when I was in the the times I gave to my music was 100% full bore, full gas, right? And 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 that was not only enough to to make me a contributing member that wasn't holding back um <clears throat> the progress of the whole group, but also allowed me to benefit as well from my musical experience. I think if I would have said, oh, I don't really care that much about music, but I'm still going to be in it. And then I show up at rehearsals and I'm kind of just loosey goosey and I don't even really care. I don't, I don't give full effort. Well, that's pointless. You shouldn't even be there then. So in all of this is to say that if you're what, when you watch Jesse Diggins, you should put your young people in front of the screen when she's racing because she has a great job. And I will say too, I, I have ra- uh, ragged on her a little bit. Uh, because the finish line antics are sometimes they appear corny to me. You know, when, when you see as she comes across and she collapses and she's wheezing on the ground and, and you're just kind of like, okay, this, this seems corny. It, it doesn't seem authentic. Um, I'm, I'm gradually, she's gradually convincing me that that is more authentic than I may have originally thought. And so I, I'm I'm okay being proven wrong on that. However, here's my challenge, and I'd be interested to see what Jesse would say uh, to this. Okay, so last this yesterday, you collapse, you're wheezing, whatever. What about at the Olympics? Not a lot of collapsing there right away, right? There was screaming and arms being raised, and then hugging, and then falling down. But like 
if you would have been in that moment of full, like, I can't even breathe, wouldn't you have collapsed and wheezed around for a while and then celebrated if you were truly there? Or, you know, think about, I mean, so that that's one, right? Uh, why didn't you just collapse and then and then celebrate? And maybe maybe what I maybe what you would say I assume is, um, well, well, what what I'll say is uh, to me I'm still left with some convincing because I do think there's a part of Jesse that is a little bit about the glitter, a little bit about the appearance, a little bit about the drama. So when it's convenient to collapse, she does. When it's convenient to tear up at the finish, she does. I mean, look at Tour de Ski, right? Like she should have been laying down on the ground for like an hour at the top of the the uh, final climb, you know, and she's, she's a little drama or a little bit of that. But when it's convenient to scream in jubilation, she does that too. So I'd be interested to hear a response to that. And I think maybe what she might say is, hey, you don't really realize that in those moments, the emotional weight can actually overcome the physical exhaustion. You know, winning an Olympic gold medal for in that, in that moment, my body forgot about how exhausted I was. And, and I really was screaming. I, I mean, <clears throat> this is this is still a stark difference to like the Kipchoge's who come across when they win a gold medal and they're like or when Kipchoge broke two hours it looked like he was finishing what most of us would if we did like if someone said hey run 100 meters at your 10k pace like we wouldn't be tired doing that <laughs> and, and he just literally looked like he was finishing up and he's like wow what did I just do you know like Anyone else trying to do something that is on the limits of human, uh, you know, the human limits as a as a whole should have been collapsing in utter exhaustion. And so Jesse is not like that. So I'll give her some credit there. But I'd be interested to see what kind of her how she could defend that because it, it is kind of like at these World Cup races where there's not a lot of uh, fans or it's it's just a normal World Cup race, not an Olympics, right? And you you just kind of I'm gonna collapse because I want to let everyone know that. I gave everything I did. The thing is, again, one last thing is she is proving to me that the way she pours it out over the whole course, it's gradually convinced me that that her finish line antics aren't really antics, that they are pretty authentic. And and I enjoy that too. When you watch her race, she's, she doesn't really ever for a second, you know, uh, let up. I like watching Diggins for that reason. She's She is... You can tell that she has done some mental imagery and and imaged herself going over all the turns, all the parts of the course, everything, right? And making sure that she she knows exactly the lines she wants to take. And when she's in the race, she she is fully focused on the task at hand. And and the task at hand is carrying out the mental imagery train that she imaged. And so, and that is something we haven't, we've, we don't really teach young people either. And you can see it in some athletes where when they're in the race, they are reacting to what's happening. Like Diggins isn't reacting to what's happened. She's already thought about what could happen. And, and she is simply carrying things out that she has, has imaged in her mind and, and, and walked through those things. And the difference is you see it in the composure that there, there isn't that. And, and that the full bore that full bore, the, the gas is to the pedal to the metal the whole way. When you are a, a reactor, you're fluctuating. It's like you're going off and on because you're trying to react to what's what's really happening and you're being inefficient in your decision making. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, any race of any distance for Diggins probably is 
kind of a mental exhaustion, uh, uh, full of mental exhaustion, because when you are that honed in, that also happens. You get to the finish and, you, and you're kind of like you come out of that program almost like you're in, a, you're in a computer program as a body and your mind and your soul. And you start to step out and you're like, oh, OK, wow. All right. I was just in that mode. Now I'm out of it. Like Diggins does embody that, too. And, and you see people going over the course sometimes. And you can tell they're just like they're just kind of out for a ski and they might take a corner inefficiently. And it's like I don't think they thought about how they wanted to address that. I don't think they they I think that, you know, they're out trying their best. They're giving full effort. They are. But they didn't prepare the most efficient way to do that. And because of that, they made a they they were making a decision in the race instead of already knowing what the decision was and pouring most of their effort into carrying it out. I, I think that's that's maybe the best way of kind of explaining it. You know, it's not to say that, well, what about this other athlete who doesn't do the mental imagery? Are they are they are you saying they're not giving a hundred percent effort? No, I am. But but a lot of their effort and energy is being spent on making decisions. Diggins has already made those decisions, has already imaged them in her mind. All of her energy is being spent on carrying out the battle plan. Um, so that that's something I think we can also learn from watching her. And finally, wow, we've talked about Jess Diggins for a long time. My wife's gonna be angry. Um <clears throat> the other thing that I kind of do appreciate, this isn't necessarily a flattering thing, so I'm sorry, Jesse, if you're listening or if you ever will, but I think the part of Diggins having technique, she's not the purest, most um, technically sound skier by any means, but the fact that she has that makes it, makes her more relatable too, to the average ski fan. And the fact that she is constantly improving also makes it not just relatable, but honorable, that we can go... Yeah, look at this person. She is relevant to the World Cup because she has the heart of a lion. And it's not necessarily because she is the most technically sound skier, like a Klabo, who, who really is. The, um, it's because of her heart and desire. But that doesn't mean she just runs on that alone. She is trying to develop her weaknesses and trying to work on classic skiing and classic striding and and how to... Um, hold to hold together your technique as you fatigue all those things so all those things that's to say that we have some really cool skiers to follow and and i'll say one more on the guy's side why was i so proud to be a fan how about schumacher not just his placement in the top 10 but the best moment of the race yesterday was when he was coming in for his finish at the same time that Kruger was behind him coming into like the 6.8 kilometer check mark. And Schumacher just like put on, you know, up this, up the final climb, kind of going into the stadium and taking a right turn. He, he really like started sprint climbing up this hill. And I, and I was kind of wondering if, if it was either, I'm guessing he was just kind of like, oh, yep, this is where I decided, I decided before the race, I'm going to sprint it in. I'm going to make it no matter what. Or if it was Kruger's behind me, and I'm not going to let him pass me at this point. <laughs> you know, even though it means nothing, there are intervals starting, whatever. But um, if there was any sense of pride there or like competitive juice, um, I don't know if he mentioned that in his interviews. I haven't listened to them after the race, but I thought that was kind of a cool moment. And as I was watching it, I didn't realize he was going in for the finish. So I was like thinking he was pulling this Noah Hoffman of like, I am not going to get passed by this guy who's behind me, even though you know, it's an interval start. So I was kind of thinking that was cool. And then he, then he made the turn into the finish and, and my, my mind shifted like, well, it's still an honorable move because not everyone is able to, at the end of a 15 K 
actually go into a sprint. You know, and, and we often talk about this where like uh, in running too, in cross country, you pick a point on the course near the finish where you're like, when I get to here, no matter what I'm feeling or thinking, I'm going to start sprinting. And when you get to that point in the race, you hit that mark and you're like, there's no way I can sprint. I am dead. Right. And I'm guilty of that for sure. And and runners have tried to say, it's like, you just got to do it because you, you will be able to, you have, um, you have that deep down in you, you do, and you just have to kind of believe it and start sprinting. It'll happen. So Schumacher, you know, still kind of cool. They did that. Um, <clears throat> and, and I don't think it was a case where he was pulling the, you know, seventh man on the Carleton College cross country team. And what I mean by that is the athlete who is pretty decent, but really runs the race just for the last 200 meters so he can show off a sprint finish. I don't think Schumacher was saving up for that. So if you were Gus, you got, come on, you got a full bore, right? Don't leave anything left. I don't think he was like that. So that was cool. Those were cool moments from yesterday's races. All right, we're going to hop into the next thing. Um, I don't have any ads because we're just kind of we're recording this. This podcast is coming at you free. Uh, um, if you want to be a sponsor for the Cedar Skier Podcast, you should get a hold of me on Facebook. And um, we take we take love uh, and support as <laughs> if you just if you just want to send us a sticker that we that we can put on the van, you know, the Sprinter van, the Cedar Skier Sprinter, Enoch. You know why we named him Enoch is because Enoch in the Bible was taken into heaven, so he never died. And um, we hope that our sprinter van will never die. And and it's going to run for a million miles, which it should. It's the T1N1. Anyway, if you want to send us a, uh, a sticker and, and, and show your love and support for the Cedar Skier podcast and the Cedar Skier dream, which is, you know, competing on the Visma Classics at some point um, in my life, that you can donate to that fund. We, we, we haven't really set up the fund exactly. <laughs> Uh, but if if you send us some sort of monetary donation and say this is for your European marathon tour that is yet to happen, I I can guarantee you I will put that in the piggy bank. You know, literal literally I'll put it in the piggy bank and I'll say, no, honey, you cannot spend this on groceries. This is for m- me getting to the Birkin again and um, racing racing the real Vasilopet. Um, you know I'm training hard for that, so it's it's not going to go nowhere. All right, and. <laughs> if it ends up going towards a Thule to pull our future child behind skiing, that's still not love loss. So anyway, if you want to be a sponsor, you should, I don't know, comment on Facebook. Comment on the cedarskier.com page where I post this. That would be a good idea um, if you want to send us some love and support because I don't really have something set up right now where it's like you can just Venmo money. I mean, I, I'd rather it be more personal anyway. Hey, Ryan, I'd like to give you $100 for skiing. Here you go. And then I'll write you. A, I'll say, "Hey, that's you're amazing." And, and here's here's a letter, and I'll I'll give you some sort of special perk. You know, maybe a shout out on my Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I get typically between one and four comments and likes on social media, so I I'm starting to grow. Okay, let's move on though. Okay, um, what I want to say about, more about this race, Clabo, the anti Diggins. <laughs> First half of the show, we're talking about how amazing it is to watch the full throttle effort of Jesse Diggins. And then we have Johannes Klabo, who, let's be honest, like, he looked like he was just out for a jog yesterday. Didn't he? He's got pure, beautiful skating form. I love watching him skate ski because it does look effortless. And so it's, sometimes it's hard, I think, to determine or discern, like, is he is he sloughing right now or not? 
Um, but but the reason I think I say I think he he was is there, there's no reason why he can't keep pace with Bolshinov in a 15k skate. This wasn't a 40k skate, okay? Like I don't know. I I think Klabo has in his mind thought now determined I'm a sprinter. The thing I really care about is a sprint globe, and he knows if he tries to go up against Bolshinov for that overall title. And, and in doing so, trying to win some distance races, I think he knows that's going to be a hard battle that he might lose. And Klabo has so much at stake in terms of being dominant that he, for him, it makes more sense to kind of give up that fight of I'm not going to try to to go toe-to-toe with Bolshinov in any distance races. It makes sense for him to do that because his image is one of winning when you try and making it look like you're not trying. He is the guy who is going to celebrate in the last 10 meters and and turn around and look at his competitors as he crosses the finish line. He's going to do that. He, he has been doing that at Norwegian national races. So he and that is not the model, okay? So what we just talked about is the model. <clears throat> you should not be copying as a young person, Klabo's demeanor and his approach to competing. You can copy his technique all you want. That's great. You should. You should follow it. He's he's the best pure skier in terms of technique and athleticism and innovation and the whole total package. He's the best. And that's why we rag on him because he really should be the best at the 15K skate in the world. There's no reason why he won. If he had the heart of Jesse Diggins, he would have beaten Bolshinov and everyone else by a lot, of, a, a long ways. So that's... That's my argument there is you can see this stark dichotomy of this is what happens when you have all the talent and all the tools, but you don't have the killer Steve Prefontaine instinct is you become a Clabo and Clabo. I don't know if you guys realize how dominant he is. He has 39 World Cup victories right now. He's seven behind Bjorn Dolly. Dolly did it in a 10 year career on the World Cup between 89 and 99. And Klabo has done it in essentially four and a half years. So he's going to double what Dolly did. Now, Bjorn Dolly won 45 distance events and one sprint event. Klabo already has won, I believe, 24 World Cup sprint events. Okay. He's also won nine distance events. So he has shown that he has the ability to do that, right? Which is another reason why you know, like, come on, man. Like, you're just deciding to pick and choose which distance events you think you can win. And the second it it seems like it might not work out, you kind of back down to make it look like you didn't try. The sprints, Klabo has all of his stake in. For Klabo to lose a sprint is devastating. That That is his thing now. That is his thing. And it, it's remarkable. He broke the record for the most sprint um, sprint victories. You know, like in his second year, he has 24 now. I think second place is like 12 13, 14. Um, so Klabo is going to write himself in the record books as the most decorated skier of all time by a lot if he even just continues doing what he's doing. But I think there is a call to being uh, to a higher calling here <clears throat> where you lay it on the line when you're in the race. And he doesn't do that. And that's, that is a, a, also a difference between him and Bolshinov because Bolshinov is not the sprinter skier but when there's a sprint race he's gonna go in there with everything he's got and he is going to apply his best strategy to win 
in it as well. We saw that in 2018 in the PyeongChang Olympics, and I actually rewatched that race last night where he got third, but he led that sprint final for the first two-thirds of the race. And, and it was he was trying to run the gas out of everyone because his strength is his engine. Um, and, he, and that's why he is so good on the endurance races. I think at this point now, um, where I, I kind of made the argument, you know, Clabo should win these distance events too if he really if he really cared and showed the desire. I think since he has given up that as sort of like a criteria for himself inside, it appears, I think Bolshinov has now established himself both in talent and confidence, wherein it would be hard for Klabo to come back here and really try to take him down. Bolshinov has actually gotten better too. So I'm not I'm not just saying Klabo could wake up tomorrow and go, I'm going to care about distance, and he would automatically be winning. He would have some catching up to do too. And Bolshinov is, which that would, that's what, see the problem is, is that's what would make skiing amazing, is if Klabo started to really care about that rivalry with Bolshinov, um, in the distance races, it would make skiing more interesting. But instead, we have these athletes who, like, the second they lose or feel defeat, then they go, well, I guess I'm just not good at that. This is a problem in society, guys. <laughs> like, you, the, second they, the second they face any adversity or they face some sort of wall, oh, I just can't do it. Clabo is showing that in his racing. It's, oh, I, I'm just not a distance guy. No, I'm just a sprint guy. And, and I'll say it right now. I think I said this before. I should I should kind of contradict that Clabo maybe doesn't care about the overall title. No, that that's not right. He does. But he knows his way of getting it is winning every sprint race and then the select few distance races that are primed for him only, where he can sit and kick. That's his plan to win the overall title when it happens. It's not going to happen this year because he just missed too many races, I think. But even that, the fact that he sat out, kind of demonstrated that he was sort of saying, oh, man, it's going to be a fight to win that overall title from Bolshinov. You know, maybe I'll just sit out a month because, you know, then if I come back and, and I, I end up losing that, you know, I, I'll lose the world title, but, but I wouldn't have really even put my foot in the game anyway. Right, it's that fear of failure almost, <laughs> uh, the chance of failure. Clabo's not even going to risk that. I think that's kind of the cowardly side of of that of Clabo, and I like him as an athlete. I've said Clabo, by the way. <clears throat> Can someone write a note to the Americans and North Americans who say Clabo? Everyone, everyone says Clabo, and Clabo himself says Clabo. Where's the clip of Clabo saying Clabo? We we should we should have played that at the beginning. Maybe we did one of the first ones. He says. His name is Clabo, so that's what I'm saying. It anyway. Um, so if you were listening and you're like, "This guy's not saying his name right," no, I, I'm I am saying it right. I am saying it the way the Norwegians pronounce it. So I'll go with that. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be great, much better for the sport if we didn't have people kind of ducking the competition. And and I get it; it's harder once you start to have a stake in the game. It is harder to put yourself out there. You know, like fear of failure is harder and harder the more you win. It's not hard to fear failure. You don't fear failure when you haven't won, you know, and, and I can't totally really fully relate to that because I haven't won very much, but I, but I do know just a, a tish about it that, yeah, the second you win something, putting yourself back out there to, to face competition is harder. And, the, and when you win more and more, it becomes harder and harder. And, to, and I actually think Clabo, like the reason, you know, if someone says, well, how can you say he fears failure when he goes out and does those sprint races? Well, one, he is so good at sprinting. 
for him winning those isn't even that hard. He has supreme confidence in his abilities there. And two, I think he does have the fear of potentially, what if I lose? I think there is that in the back of his mind. And so not only has he trained himself to overcome that through that confidence, but he does address that there. So he is facing that, but he knows that that's all. He has to face that fear of failure because all he has left is the sprints. Um, so he has no choice. you know. And, and if there was a way for him to walk off into the sunset in glory you know, and then not have to face it at all, he does seem like the type of person who would do that. You know, I don't know. That's not to say like, oh, he's going to just retire early or anything like that. But I think Clabo is definitely the type of guy who seems he he's not going to win the Holman Cole 50K, which is a bummer. Like, I think if he could do that, that would cement his legacy. Right. If he if he could win a 50K classic mass start at the Olympics. Right. And really show that you are the dominant skier, which I felt like he was on that trajectory to do that. Like he can't be matched in any style race. And and he should be able to do that because of the way they race those 50Ks now. Like they don't race them like they did in the 80s. You watch those videos that we've seen on Facebook that Jim's been posting where it's like they're going full gas the whole time. Every single person out there is like a Yohawk. There is no part of the course where they let up at all. Well, nowadays, the men in the 50K, they, it's like watching, you know, men's track. They're all jogging for the first 90% of the race. And then they just sprinted in anyway. This is, uh, you know, there's a couple moves getting made, but but generally that's how it is. And and so Klobo should be right there. Now, Bolshinov is kind of pro- providing a little bit of an antithesis to that because he is sort of kind of coming out here and starting to say, I'm so much better than you guys. I'm actually just going to go solo and win the whole thing. And wow, it was pretty crazy to watch him put, um, uh, you know, pass Klobo in an interval start in a 15K. And it's not like Bolshinov looked like he was like really, really trying he just looked like he was skiing his normal pace too and schumacher brought this up in an interview that i read too where he was just kind of like astounded by the fact that bolshenov could put on such a gap on in a master at classic and the tour to ski in such a short amount of time um so he is a very strong skier no doubt we're not diminishing that and i think he has now separated himself you know from Klabo. and this there are now and this has provided a good argument dis- discussion too like who is the best because Klabo's dominance in the sprints is pretty uncontested and Bolshinov's in the distances is pretty uncontested. And it's kind of like Bolshinov is willing to go into Klabo's world and give his full effort and, and go into the sprints and go, I'm going to go with you, man. I know you are the king of this event, but I'm going to try to dethrone you. Klabo goes into the distance races and goes, if it doesn't work out all perfect, I'm just going to sandbag. Honestly, like that, that is how it feels. I don't see him going into those races with the intent to put himself out there. By the way, did you know that the person who is fourth on the overall World Cup victories is from Kazakhstan, Vladimir Smirnov? I guess it says he competed from 82 to 1999, has 30 World Cup victories, the same as Gundis Vaughn, um, Soviet, Kazakhstan. He must have been with the Soviets for a few of those years. It makes that name sounds like that. So I, I, I know skiers are like, you don't know who Vladimir Smirnov is. I think it's interesting that Kazakhstan is the one that's rep- the country represented because you got Norway, Norway, Norway in the top three: Bjorn, Johannes, and Petter. Then Sweden, Kazakhstan, Norway, Switzerland, Russia. Right, we have countries that we would expect: Lucas Bauer, Czech Republic. Then it's Sweden, Italy, Russia, Sweden, Norway, Norway. Germany, Germany, Norway, Norway, Sweden, Germany, Norway. 
Another Kazakhstan athlete. Interesting. Okay. Maybe Kazakhstan is where, where I should end up. Where would you train? Like on Mount Everest? I don't even know. I know Mount Everest is not in Kazakhstan, but it's kind of like in the uh, in the general area, right? Like, where is it? I mean, in Nepal, base camp, but doesn't it go? Actually, it's on the border of Nepal and China, maybe? I don't know. I know some of those, like Pakistan, right, has the Himalayans right through it. So aren't the Himalayans in Kazakhstan? Serious altitude training, maybe. Well, my coffee's cold, so had to refill it up here. Get to the end of this show. I just wanted to say that um, <clears throat> we have some exciting uh, future shows coming up here. Hoping to get Zach Ketterson on with us. I think we're going to record our show tomorrow with Zach. Um, and Chris Grover, we wanted to have him on a show as well. It looks like we'll record that middle of next week. Send me your questions that you want me to ask him. I don't know how much time we'll have with Chris. Um, he's being very kind and gracious to join us on the Cedar Skier podcast. But um, I also have a couple of you know race weekends here coming up too in trying to juggle that as well as reaching out to participants for my thesis research. Uh, it's been kind of overwhelming. So I'm hoping I can you know record those shows, get them out right away because I want them to be relevant time-wise. Time um, but there is, is just a lot going on. And I will say here, here's my plug, by the way. If you are a collegiate skier or at kind of close to collegiate ski level, you know, and that includes master blasters who would be, you know, doing well, really well at races. And you could, I'm not saying you, you have to be able to like be top 10 in the NCAA. Just like if you raced in an NCAA race, even at USCSA level to, to up to NCAA level. We're, ta we're talking about you. Uh, put it this way. <laughs> if you would be, if, if you're, well, no, never mind. Okay. So anyway, if you, if you think you're kind of in that, in that range between the ages of 20 and 30, but if you're over the age of 30 and you are at that level, that's fine too. We are looking for participants for our thesis research. So the details of that are we're studying the effects of um, strength to body mass ratios on double pull performance on inclines and flats. We will have a two-day study. The first day, you will get measured, weighed, body fat percentage will be taken. Um, we'll do three upper body strength tests, one lower body strength test. Shouldn't take too long, depending on the amount of participants. I mean, you won't be, you individually, each individual person is only going to do four exercises, but we will run them through, the everyone through the gauntlet, so it might take a two-hour span. I'm not really sure. The next day, two double pull time trials, one on flat for 1K, one at a gradual incline, 3 to 4%, 3 to 5% for 1K, 30-minute uh, rest in between. You use your own skis. We uniformly wax them the night before. Um, you use your own poles. <clears throat> Sorry, Swix isn't sponsoring us. We couldn't do everyone uniform triac 3.0s, although that would be ideal, scientifically speaking, and just other speaking. If you are interested in that, you should reach out to me. I'm still looking to originally um, planning on having this research take place in Leadville so I could utilize the um, the railroad grades or the mineral belt um, and our weight room here. But if you are the coach of a team and you think that you would like to be a part of this research, 
which is going to benefit you from not just an experiential stance of you get to take part in scientific research, but learning about your abilities and um, kind of having a performance metric, a new one, where, where, you know, having strength to weight ratio is common in cycling. What does that mean applied to skiing? That's, That's really what we're looking at. And in terms of double pull, one of the most foundational, you know, techniques, sub techniques in the sport, um, and if you're if you're a distance skier, especially, obviously very relevant. Um, I will say that you know inside the statistics of it, we're, we're looking at allometric scaling of uh, strength to body mass. We're also looking at just a standard ratio, which is more what you'd see in cycling, which you know just kilogram over your mass. So how how much strength or power you have divided by your mass, and also just the absolute ratio, just how much strength you have. So we are looking at three different ratios of those things. My point is, this will be valuable information to you for you to use as a metric, as opposed to just let's get stronger, or opposed to let's just get lighter. <laughs> uh, which I don't think there's a lot of skiers, hopefully not not leaning on the ladder of that. But I think there are some who are just adding bulk and mass and not thinking about what is the effect of that performance wise. So that's our study, and um, if you are interested in taking part, I would be willing to come to a college campus and take my study to you to collect data if you if you want to do that. So Montana State talking about you, University of Wyoming talking about you, even uh you know, if Colorado if you were interested or <clears throat> University of Utah, um Air Force, any of your groups, that would be appropriate if you're a, an individual and you're a fan of the Cedar Skier podcast, reach out because we're still trying to put that together. I think I, I talked with my professor last night and we kind of decided if we can just collect data this semester, that would be good. So if you, if you think, well, yeah, I'd be interested in doing it, but when we could do postseason, we could do spring break, we could m- maybe even do Oregon, Bend, Oregon, U.S. ski team. Do you want to do this? <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it, it would simulate essentially a race, too, when you think about the two double-to-pull time trials, you know, two 1K efforts. It's a little bit like a an easy sprint day, right? Um, so... So think about that. Reach out if you're interested. Hmm. I think that's kind of all I wanted to chat about. I think right about now, the races are kicking off over in Sweden. So we'll try and uh, we'll definitely be watching those and watching some of the things we just talked about. Hoping the Americans do well and um, and uh, hoping that that you get a chance to get out and ski too and enjoy this great sport. So. Um, that's kind of the cool part too, is that, you know, even though we have this pandemic going on, we have no better social distancing activity than cross country skiing. So if you're lucky enough to have a body that is, is high functioning and you've learned how to ski, that's awesome. And you should feel blessed, um, and thank, thank the good Lord for that. And if you are someone who's just brand new to the sport, don't get discouraged. It will come much quicker than you think especially if you work at your technique a little bit and work at those drills. And um, there's definitely going to be moments of frustration where things don't seem to be working well. And it's okay to take breaks, reset your focus and reset your mind and, and focus on just one thing at a time. Focus on a little drill here or there, a little aspect of technique here or there, and then go and ski for 10 minutes and not think about anything and just think about being in the woods and then come back to it. And um, I think that's a way that I know for me, at least coming to the sport pretty new, it was pretty hilarious how, how, how insanely poor my technique was, but kind of by using, you know, sessions that were structured like that, 
balancing, just enjoying being out there, enjoying the aesthetics of skiing and being in the woods and moving fast. And, and then once I got tired, trying to do a simple drill and trying to balance and trying to focus on one element of good technique. And now I'm getting to the point where I feel like I can um, balance more between thinking about more advanced elements of technique when I do that and uh, think about more... Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but instead of just thinking about balance, you know, thinking about where my body position weight is while I'm trying to balance and thinking about the consequences of that and the skate technique and classic as well. So there's my kind of rant here at the end about those those skiers who are kind of coming new to the sport that um, we're, we're on your side. And I love seeing people who are of all different abilities out skiing uh, and especially people who are new to the sport uh, it, it is. It, it really does warm my heart. And the only thing that I sometimes worry about is that they will be turned away or discouraged when they see other people who are making things look either effortless, or or they start to think that I could never do that. Um, you can. It, it does. It takes a little bit of time, and and um, so we're there for you. We're there for you. All right. This has been the Cedar Skier Podcast, Shovel Lake Public Radio. You have a great day, and we will catch you later.